I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives. I won the cornhole tournament that uh, foundation board. I yes, but, but I was I was close. You were close. Oh, it was windy. It was, it was it was cold. It was, it was cold. cold and windy. Well, that might affected have been jet lagged a little bit. Too. That could have been yeah. too. Mm-hmm. The time yeah. zone shift. Sure. Otherwise, I would have beat you. Sure. Fair. Today's guest is Russell Knowles. Russell's is a 1981 graduate of MSU Denver, earning his degree in accounting, and now is the current chair of the MSU Denver Board of Trustees. Russell's a retired corporate executive, serving most recently as an executive vice president and chief operating officer of Nuveen, a subsidiary of TIAA. Previous to that work, Russell held various financial and auditing roles at St. Paul's Travelers Companies, Quest Communications, and U.S. West. Pillar of service, Russell lends his expertise to various boards across the nation, including Consumer Reports, Jackson Financial, and of course, the MSU Denver Board of Trustees, where Russell has made an incredible impact on our university since his appointment in 2019. Russell is a roadrunner through and through and was recognized as the 2022 MSU Denver Alumni Philanthropist of the Year for his continual contributions to this university. Russell, we are so happy to have you. Welcome to Bird Talk. I'm glad to be here, Jamie. Now, I'm sure I missed a million things in that space, but that's what the rest of today is. Talk about that. Okay. All right. So we're going to start with a really hard-hitting question. Monday night's win against the Bills. Was that the turning point for the Broncos? I think it was, right? It, it started with the win over Kansas City, right? Which which I wasn't shocked about that because they always play Kansas City pretty pretty tough. Uh, but I did not expect them to go up to Buffalo and beat the Bills. I didn't either. And the way they won, because it wasn't pretty, it wasn't, you know, they didn't dominate, but they just hung in there and found a way to win, uh, and quite convincingly. They did. First two possessions, right, turnovers back-to-back. I was a little, at that point, I was like, we're going to run away with this. But you're, you're right, ugly, ugly. And then 12 men on the field. I mean, you couldn't write a script like this. No. <laughs> no, Buffalo found a way to lose. That they sure game. did. But they were outplayed and they should have lost. Yeah, no. So it was the right outcome. But I think it's, I think it's, what do we have, what, Vikings on Sunday? Do you have any yes. shared allegiances? I know you were in Minnesota for a bit. Well, I live there, mm-hmm. you know. I like the Vikings okay, but no, I'm, I'm the Broncos. <laughs> no. I used to work, you know, as I told you, Jamie, yeah. I used to work at those games when I was a teenager. So I bonded with the Broncos when we were playing some of their worst football ever. So I'm not discouraged by the bad years that we're having no. recently. We've talked about this at length. We always, I've, I've known you for about the last eight, nine years. We always managed to talk about the Broncos. Last season, a little tough. Yes. <laughs> not a lot of good conversation we had there. Got excited about Sean Payton coming. Uh, first couple games, obviously not a great space. And I'm sure as the rest of Denver was thinking, it's like, man, we've put a lot of money and a lot of our cap value in two people between Russell Wilson and Sean Payton. And gosh, is it going to work? But it looks like it is. So I'm glad to hear that we're on the same page there. Yeah, it's it's it took some time. I mean, Sean Payton is an old school coach yeah. leading, you know, younger players. And so it took a while for them to adjust to him. But I think they're rallying around his leadership. I'm with you. So that's the hardest question you're going to get all day. Good, well, like, that's, that's glad that's over with. <laughs> right? I know. Now, let's really start at the beginning. So Denver native, yes. George Washington High School, DPS student. Um, what was your path to MSU Denver? What was it like growing up and thinking about coming to college here? Was it even on your radar or did you just kind of land here? You know, uh, it, Metropolitan State College of Denver, sure. as it was called back then, was on my radar because it was well known in the, you know, the black community as a place where a lot of black students went. Uh, but I also applied out of state. I applied at CU up in Boulder and also University of Denver. And I got accepted at all of them. But what made the difference for MSU Denver was that they had a cooperative education uh, scholarship program, 
where they paid for my first year of college, you know, tuition fees, books, even books wow. back then. Uh, and I had a job out at the Air Force Academy and Finance Center as an accounting student trainee, so I got to work while I was going to school. Gave me a five-year path to getting my degree, but I graduated with a couple of years of work experience. And, you know, I would save some of the money while I was working to pay for my tuition, which was very affordable back then. Sure. So I could perceive that I would be graduating with zero student loan debt. I'd have work experience. I'd be well-equipped to join the workforce. I mean, that's exactly what we talk about today in terms of, you know, we talk about graduating those gritty roadrunners that have figured it out, that are ready and equipped. And uh, and I, it's amazing to me to know that that's been our history since you were here in the 80s. Yes, that is who we are. It is who we are. And it, it, I appreciate that because I think there's so much narrative that's going on in higher ed just globally, especially nationally, talking about you know people having to change what their institution does or who they serve or what that looks like. And the consistency of the almost, what, 60 years that we've done here at MSU Denver is pretty incredible. It is. It is absolutely incredible. It's remarkable. That's part of what makes us a one-of-a-kind institution. And to know that we were doing co-ops back then as well, because I know there's a few of those programs, Lockheed most notably, that we are in partnership with now. A similar opportunity our students get to get their advanced manufacturing degree, get some opportunity to work with Lockheed, you know, a very reputable top Fortune, probably 100 company, uh, and getting that opportunity. What, what was it like to be the civilian at an Air Force base? You know, it, there were there was a healthy civilian population there. So there were, you know, Air Force people walking around in uniform and all that, which I thought was pretty cool. Sure. Just watching that tradition play out and how they saluted, you know, the, how the enlisted people saluted the officers and, you know, get a feel for all And you that. were at the academy? I was actually at the Air Force Academy and Finance Center, which was at Lowry Air Lowry, Force okay. Base, right? Because I've, I've been to the Air Force Academy, and if you've ever been down there, I have seen, been. and seen them walk on the lines. Yes. And I just think it's such an incredible thing that we can still, like, in a patriotic way, haze people. I love it. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's all, you know, legitimate. It is. It is. Yeah. You're, building, you're building character. You're building structure. You're building this idea of... Saying yes, understanding duty, commitment, um, yeah, and respect, and all those 100%. you know those good values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so no, it was it was it was great. I enjoyed it. Um, I got to learn a lot about the military. I got to learn a lot about the federal government, uh, including that when I graduated, that was probably not where I wanted to start my career. Fair, <laughs> totally fair, and that's okay if other people do, but it's not for everybody, right? That's right. <laughs> um, so I read a story. Um, I think in one of the reports that we've actually done about you your kind of proclivity towards accounting happened because of some guest speakers that you had in high school. That's right. Yeah, I had it at George Washington High School. Uh, it, was in a, it was a group called the Denver Chapter of the National Association of Black Accountants. They were out engaging the Denver public schools in the high school level at schools where there was a significant black student population, recruiting students to be interested in accounting. So they came to the business classes and there was three black accountants that came in and talked to us. And I had already started thinking about accounting because my mother suggested it, right? I mean, why else sure. you do anything? Mom says it. Mom said it. I said, she said, you're good with math. You're hey, good I with still numbers. make my bed every day because of that. I get yeah, it. look, moms are, I mean, they're, they're highly influential. You know, and I grew up in a household that was led by two black women, right? My mother and my grandmother yeah. led the household. So when they said something, I listened to it. Smart so man. they came in, they talked to us, it resonated with me, you know, they, their invitation was to come downtown to downtown Denver and spend a half a day with them. They'd start out the day at this restaurant called the Top of the Rockies, which was down on uh, 17th and Glen Arm. That restaurant no longer exists, but it was like a real top floor of that building. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so we'd start out lunch there and then we'd go to their office and spend a half a day with them and got to see what they did. 
And that was what sealed the deal for me because I could see myself doing that. So, yes, that made a huge impact on my decision to say, yep, I'm going to go do this accounting thing. I think you're hitting at the heart of so much of what we're trying to do here at MSU Denver. Uh, And many of our podcast guests, uh, previous podcast guests, we've talked about this idea of representation, especially in the healthcare industry. You know, we we have all the data. We've had all the experts come and talk to us about how uh, it is a much better quality of care. It is much more accessible care, and it is care that people will seek out if their care provider looks like them, understands their culture, understands their language, whatever the case might be. And it sounds to me like that was the experience that you had in this space. When you're seeing someone um, kind of present in a way that you can see yourself in them, it changes your ideas of what is possible, right? Absolutely. Because I had no idea what an accountant did other than, you know, when I told people I was considering it, they said, oh, you're going to do income tax returns. I said, no, accountants do more than that, right? I got a real view of that when I rode shotgun with them uh, in their firms. So yes, the representation resonated with me and then I could see myself doing what they did. Yeah. That's kind of a, I was going to make a joke here, but I know <laughs> I, I write my jokes down. I don't write facts that I want to do. <laughs> I write down my jokes. So I may be the first person who's ever said this to you, Russell, but tell me more about accounting. Is, and that's a joke? <laughs> That people actually want to know about yeah. accounting? Yeah, most know. people yeah. don't want to know, right? <laughs> Exactly, right? So uh, I did take one accounting class in law school, and I joke about this. So of all the coursework that I've done over time, a handful of degrees, I've only taken, I think, three business classes. Um, two of them were in graduate school, and it was like a management class, and then we had a finance class, but it was through project-based work. We did a uh, feasibility study for the city that I was in to bring a minor league baseball team there, which was great. So we had to do some financial analysis, some performance, things like that. But like, I don't really know the nuts and bolts of it. And then when I was in law school, I was like, I'm going to take that accounting class. It was a one credit class. And I swear to you, I'm not lying. The only thing I can remember from that class is they told me two things. One, don't commingle funds and don't sleep with your clients. And that was like the heart and soul of law school accounting. And I think it's, it probably stands true. Don't get me wrong. Still does. But I think I missed a lot of things in that space. But what was it about accounting that was like, I can see myself doing it? Was it a, a, a like, is it a sinking of kind of your interests or your skill sets or that idea of just really monotonous work or spreadsheets? What was it? Well, you know, back then, accountants wore green eye shades and sat in the back of the room and no one talked to them. There you go. That wasn't why I did it, right? <laughs> You know, it's, I was always good at math, okay, which is why my mother sent me that direction. She had been in her earlier days a, a bookkeeper and worked for accountants. So she had a view of what accountants did, which was doing all the accounting policy and the standards and uh, the financial statements that summarize all the transactions. So she gave me that view of it. So I said, yeah, I think I could, that could be interesting. I've always been interested in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in those days, they always characterized accounting as the language of business. Mm. So if you get into accounting, you understand how businesses work. So that was also what drew me to it. Uh, and it just becomes a way to, to learn and understand how a business operates. Yeah. And it's a framework for doing analysis and walking into new situations. I gravitate towards I want to understand the numbers. That's just sort of my inclination. And as you think about, at least in the way I think about uh, success, some of the, the building blocks for success, it's taking that which you're interested in and that which you're good at and you bring those two together and you usually can find 
success being started there. Oh, I would agree. I, I think about that. My career in higher ed started in uh, student advising and kids would always come into my office and say, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I said, well, you don't have to know that right now. What do you like to do? You know, I'd encourage students to take the courses that spoke to them because you're going to be way more engaged as a student if you're interested in the coursework. And I remember once this young man, he was a golfer at the uh, at Iowa State University, and he was like, I don't care about business. I don't care about this. I really want to learn how to be a better communicator. He was a very nervous kid. He's in the space. He's like, I took this communications class. I loved it. I go, great, let's study communication. His dad, who was a high-level businessman in the Des Moines area, I remember calling me up on the phone and was like, my son needs to be a business major. And I was like, you can work in business with a different set of skills. I'm not sure that your son wants to be studying business or that he has a proclivity to those things. His interests, his skills, they were not there. But it just is always that kind of mindset of me. And even now teaching here, I have conversations with students all the time. Spend the time studying the things that you like because you'll find success when you compare those things within you know, those areas where your skills set lends themselves, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So your accounting uh, career took a large or a large portion of it was spent in the auditing space. What got you there? Well, it's interesting. Well, I started my career uh, with an auditing firm, with Arthur Anderson Company, which is one of the big eight CPA Now, true firms. or false, Brad Kaplan, one of your classmates and now a member of our Alumni Association board, has told me that he was your first boss. Uh, he was. Oh, my God. Look at that. Not that I was thinking that Brad was lying to me because Brad is a wonderful because Brad gentleman. wouldn't lie. He's a CPA. CPA <laughs> He's a don't CPA. They don't lie, <laughs> right? Um, but he told me that, and I was like, "Really? Like, what a small world!" So yeah, that's too funny. yeah, out at US West Inc. <laughs> because I spent three years at Anderson, then I went to uh, the sixteen billion dollar startup telephone company called US West in nineteen eighty four. And Brad was at the U.S. West Inc. Mm-hmm. corporate headquarters, and so when I rolled into a job out there, he was he was my boss. That's too funny. Yeah, and I had no idea until like within the last five or six years that he was an MSU Denver alum. Yeah, I had no idea. We hear that narrative all the time too yeah. that you're somewhere and you're like I've known you for however long and I didn't know we shared this thing in common. Exactly. But Brad has been an incredible asset to our institution. I think especially upon his retirement, realizing he had a lot still to give and where did he want to do that? And he talks so fondly about his time at MSU Denver that it seemed like a natural fit. And he's been a wonderful asset to our alumni board. Key in uh, getting our statue built. I don't know if you when you came in today if you saw we have a platform, a concrete pad there, and the new Roadrunner, the Rowdy statue is going to be placed in the next couple of weeks. Which I, we're I excited. Heard about that. I know. Got to have some traditions on campus. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Nothing better than to have Riley staring right at you as soon as you walk right on the truth. It's the truth. I'm just looking forward to like the student pranking that I hope will happen. You know, like getting him dressed up for different events, you know, summer, put him in a bikini, you know, who knows? That's what I'm looking for. That will happen. I I hope so. Quite sure. And no one's going to be disciplined for it. I'm just going to be like, that's awesome. Take a photo. Yes. Capture the moment. (laughs) Exactly. And then let's get it off and wait for the next people. So auditing. Sorry about that. Oh, auditing. So, so, so I started my career in auditing, right, as an independent auditor working with a CPA firm. So that's the way I began my career. And then when I went into uh, working in the corporate sector with U.S. West, um, the auditing job opportunity came up as a result of my boss moving me around through different jobs. I was at U.S. West for 17 and a half years. Over that time period, I was, I was moved through nine different jobs. Yeah. Uh, and... I only applied for one job the whole time I was there, and I was not even interviewed for it. So it's what's really irked me. It's like, what? I applied for a job. No one even noticed I cared. Yeah. 
you know, my, my ego got offended. I got on the controller's uh, calendar, the corporate controller, and said, hey, here I am. And he's like, well, who are you? Right. So after I met with him, then things started happening, took an interest in my career. And that was one of the jobs he moved me into towards the latter part of my time there. And he put it on the table and said, this would be a great job for you. And I said, David, I've already done audit, and I did it when I was at Arthur Anderson. I have no interest in doing that. And he said, I'm not asking. I'm telling you, this is sure. what your job is, right? This is good for the company. It's good for your development. So take this job. I said, okay, I'll do it. I went into it not expecting to really like it. It turned out to be probably one of the best job moves I made in my career because it gave me an overall view of the company because in an internal audit role, you get to see the entire company. Yep. You get to learn all the operations. You get to meet all the executives and their teams. You get a feel for the culture of the organization, where business discipline is and where it isn't, where you've got people with good, strong, solid ethics, where people don't. So it became a currency for me because as I uh, took that job on, I did it for about five years. It also was the lightning rod that I could use to transfer to other companies and other industries as well. I spent... um oh gosh, maybe three years in a compliance role, again, for an athletics department. So not dealing in crazy things, although it's making the news more and more every day. I just I just read last night as I was having trouble sleeping that the uh, temporary uh, restraining order, um, the Gag injunction hiling, like well, that one too, but uh, but the, the Jim Harbaugh one. So, oh, yes. So he got obviously suspended for violating the in-person recruiting rules, right? And then tried to file a temporary injunction, which was perfect because I'm teaching constitutional law right now. So I got to come into class and be like, guys, remember when we talked about injunctions? This is what's happening. But he settled it last night. Like he took the Big Ten's punishment because they probably had more information that he didn't want brought up if they went into court. Um, but so things like that do happen, but it's different. But yeah, the gag orders I saw, um, read that as well. There's there's so much going on. It's a great time to teach constitutional law I because there's no is. rules. It's fascinating, right? <laughs> I, I look at through, I've been teaching it for about five years now. And I look through and I'm like, nope, got to change that slide because that isn't true anymore, uh, which I never thought I'd have to say that in the constitutional law space. But regardless, but I did work in compliance for a little bit. I had a wonderful boss in that space. And I'm so grateful for his mentorship. His name was Dustin Gray. But I remember on my first day of work, he just said to me, he's like, that's not your job. Your job is to figure out how to make how to make it work in an ethical and values-based way. Because it changed the way I thought about everything. That no doesn't mean, no, we don't want to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It just means that we can't do it the way that you're doing it. That's absolutely right. The, the incentives are there, particularly for public companies, sure. right, to behave badly mm -hmm. uh, around Wealth. Yeah. You know, yeah. Power and wealth, wealth. Power, wealth, greed. Mm -hmm. you know, and so that's one reason why towards the latter part of my career, I gravitated away from public companies to a private company. Yeah. So I saw the bad behavior around, you know, goals of increasing revenue growth and earnings per share. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember my experience in college was so moving that I was like, everyone needs to experience this. Everyone needs to have those years where they are not tethered to what they have to learn because some standard says they have to, but they get the opportunity to develop knowledge in the places that are going to inspire them in the most ways. And, you know, and for many of us, it's happening at a more formative time in our, in our lives that it's shaping how we think and what we think and different opinions. And so I knew real early that that was the place I wanted to be. But sometimes I'm like, gosh, there's, there's limitations, there's struggles, 
there's bureaucratic red tape, as I'm sure you now know more, having been the chair of the board, right? That, gosh, sometimes private company seems like not a bad deal. Yeah, you know, corporations, and I've said this to President Davidson several times, I said, after really appreciating your job as the president of a public higher ed institution, and this is my fifth year on the board, second year as chair, it's a lot easier to get things done in a corporation than it is here because of the shared governance model. Mm -hmm. You have a number of key stakeholders whose interests you must make sure that you are addressing, thinking about, considering, engaging with in making important decisions, right? Inside a corporation, it's it's much more simple. You have your board of directors, you have your shareholders. They say you're going to take this job. Yeah, and it's just, you you got the power, the juice to do it, and you just... it just is more complicated in higher education. So it takes longer to make important decisions. Well, and I think the other thing that is that I've really thought on the last couple years um, is the idea that we're not even in control of our own business plan, right? You think about it from a corporate standpoint. You say, here is our budget. Here's what we need in order to do X, Y, Z and to grow our revenues, to do whatever. And if you need more money, you raise prices or you cut staff or you do whatever you need to do to be able to be in control of that. We are not in control of our business model. We have a set tuition <laughs> revenue that then is capped by, uh, you know, the, the Joint Budget Task Force and the governor on what we can and can't raise. We have set amounts of money that we have to pay certain people based on, you know, since we're state employees in certain spaces. And so if there's a gap in the money that's coming in and the money that it actually costs for that education, what do we do? Yeah. And we know that we're living in that, right? We absolutely are. And, you know, if I sort of compare and contrast to today to when I was a student here back in the late 70s, early 80s, the state of Colorado paid for more of our higher education back then. When I came through, I mean, when I graduated, my tuition, a full semester's tuition was around $200 mm-hmm. uh, for the semester, you know, for a course load up to 18 credit hours. Mm-hmm. That's because the state of Colorado paid for about 70, 75 percent. Yeah. Uh, of my tuition. It's flipped. Mm-hmm. You know, the state of Colorado is paying for more like 20, 25% of our students' tuition, which means we have, that's why our tuition costs have increased. Uh, and it really challenges our ability to keep, you know, education affordable and accessible right. to students here. So our business model is very challenged. It's very different than in the private sector. You just say, okay, we got a revenue deficit. We'll raise prices. We'll figure out where. You know, demand is more inelastic. We'll raise prices there. And you can engage in strategies to stimulate the market and all those other things. With higher ed, it's it's a very different business. Yeah, and there's just no power in that space. I remember uh, working with George Middlemiss probably, that was probably seven or eight years ago, and thinking on this idea and being like, what is the day? Like, what portion of the year are we actually operating where there's no revenue coming in? So we did some calculations. And one of our great fundraising strategies was going to be, was going to like celebrate this day, not celebrate it, but like use it as a fundraising day as being like, this is the day tuition runs out. Uh, And we did the calculation and it was sometime in early March where it was like, from what you pay from a tuition standpoint and what we get from the state government uh, and in that space, we are done with revenue like March 12th, let's say, right? And so what do we do from March 12th to May? (laughs) And that's where, as opposed to changing some of your business strategies, increasing revenue in other places, stimulating the market, it is how do we scrape by and really bend corner so that our student experience stays great. But what is the stress and the pressure that we're putting on our staff and our faculty to make this happen? Uh, And it was, 
like I was, I just remember being like, oh, this is great. We figured out the day. And then as it sunk in, I was like, oh, this is a horrible day. Because what it's doing is it's calling attention to this fact that like we are so administratively and even faculty thin in so many places uh, and asking people to do so many different things so that we can stretch out that tuition and those state revenues to make it all the way to May. That's right. And, and you know, one of the things we cannot do is just continually raise tuition. Right. Right, because our mission is around access. You know, we're an open access institution, and we pride ourselves in being able to. It's an important part of delivering on that mission is to be affordable, and so raising tuition to bring in more revenue so that we can better balance the budget is not the answer. Yeah. You know, we've been forced to have to raise tuition uh, in recent years more than we would like to, but the mindset. You know, from the president's office and from the board of trustees, is to, we must keep tuition affordable so that we can deliver on our access mission. Yeah, I agree. You've been on the trustee board, you said, since 2019. I believe your chairship is done, it's, just coming up, right? Right. The end of this calendar year, my two-year term as is, is chair is up. Are you taking a break? Are you going to go on vacation? Are you going to celebrate that, or is it a sad day? Well, you know, it's 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 not a sad day, you know, because. I've enjoyed my time in this role. I still have another three years yeah. on the board of trustees. Mm-hmm. I've been working with Kristen Hulquist, who's mm-hmm. my vice chair, who's going to move into being the chair. Uh, so, you know, we're aligned around how we want to continue to support President Davidson and delivering on the mission and the vision, mm-hmm. right, of this institution. And it's, so it's exciting to be able to move into a less administrative role for me where, you know, I had to care a lot about how board meetings went and all this stuff, you know, all the administrative logistics. I don't have to worry about those things and I can move back into being the trustee who can focus on other things than just administrative, but also focus on digging into certain areas, which I'm going to move back to being chair of the finance committee. Okay. So I can dig back into those numbers, work with our... Put on your green glasses and yeah, sit back. Yeah, we'll do that. And you work with Jim Carpenter, our <laughs> yeah. CFO, who's yeah. doing some really great stuff, uh, and just continue to move forward you know, with the financial agenda of the university. So in the last couple of years as being a chair, what are some of the things that either shocked you or that you were excited to learn about or things that you, know, you just got your hands on that maybe you hadn't seen in, in other roles that you've had across the institute? Well, you know, just digging into, in my first few years, really understanding the financial yeah. constraints of the university, you know, the, the subsidy that I talked about mm-hmm. before, how yeah. the state used to really, you know, subsidize higher education, how that is flipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the challenges that we have just around, you know, most recently, just around things like our faculty workload. You yeah. know, our faculty is, 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 some of our faculty members are really struggling to be able to keep up with the course workload uh, in addition to what we need for them to do and what they want to do with advising uh, and, and engaging with students. And so the fact that we need to come up with a better solution, and it's probably a nuanced solution. Mm-hmm. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. The world is too complicated for a one-size-fits-all solution to do anything for everyone. So we're going to figure that out, right, uh, with our new provost. So that's been a good learning experience is delving into the faculty workload uh, situation and understanding that our faculty's got a lot of pressures and stresses. And it's such a unique institution, right? We're not a research one institution. We are a teaching institution. Our class sizes are exceptionally small, yes. which I appreciate now that it's midterm and project grading time. <laughs> you know, I'm only grading 35 things instead of, you know, 300. We've done so many things to really articulate that idea that we are a teaching institution. Our faculty are teaching, not teacher's assistants, not 
you know, graduate assistants in that space. We've held strong in that space, but what we've realized when we talk to alums, whether it's you or any of the alums that we talk to, their memories and their pivotal moments of why they did the career, why they chose the career they did, whatever that looks like, always comes back to that faculty interaction. And what you hear more often than not is that it's something that the faculty did outside of the classroom, right? We had one of our uh, alums very thoughtfully talks about how they were non-native English speaking, didn't really, had enough to kind of get by, but not really understanding. They were in a math or accounting class in the College of Business, and the faculty member recognized that wasn't an area uh, that they were excelling in. And so outside of the classroom, having those conversations, talking through what are your resources, how can I help you, how can I tutor you, how can we start um, making sure that you are being, uh, that you're receiving all the information you need to, because it's coming in a language that you don't inherently understand as your first language. Those are the things that are of most value, to be very honest, to our students are those interactions that are happening outside of the classroom, helping them find internships, helping them uh, with personal problems, with whatever might be happening. And if that is not the epitome of a teaching institution, I don't know what is, but managing that with the real reality that we still need to teach classes, we still need to do these things. It is, it's a heavy lift. I'm not, I'm not jealous <laughs> that you're dealing with it. Well, it, it is absolutely a heavy lift. Uh, and, and I can, you know, reflect back on my student career here mm-hmm. where one of my uh, accounting professors, his, he and I shared the first, share first names. His name was Russell Bean. Sure. Uh, I had him for principles of accounting two, intermediate accounting two, and advanced accounting two. Had him three times Never got an A. I had three Bs. It's like really ticked me off. And he always said, you're, you're one of my best students. Yeah. So why can't I get an A? Well, his grading scale was 93 to 100. Right? Sure. It was an A. I, I consistently got 90 to 92. Yeah. And I said, can as you get me some? As long as you weren't the kid that got a 92.45 and asked to be rounded That's up. That's right. And he, we get those. And he, he, he wouldn't round. He just said, you got <laughs> yep. to get solidly in there. It's accounting. Right? You got to know. That's what you got to yeah. do, right? But he gave me some really good career advice where he was really you know pushing for his top students to, to go into public accounting as their first mm-hmm. career choice. I wasn't going to do that because mm-hmm. I heard about the overtime, the travel, the stress. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not doing that. So when the CPA firms came on campus to do the interviews, I skipped them. I wasn't going to interview, right? And then at the end of his uh, – this was an intermediate accounting two class. At the end of the class day, he said, you need to come see me in my office. And I said, why? He said, we'll talk. Said, okay. So I made you know, an appointment, came to see him, and he said, we had all the CPA firms. The big eight were here. You didn't even participate in the interviews. I said, well, I decided I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And he said, Russell, you need to. Great. And he gave me all the rationale for why this first job is so important. You know, you got to start your career there. The brightest and the best of our students always start their careers there. That's where you belong. I said, well, I missed the interview. He says, I've got relationships with all those firms. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call them. You're going to get some interviews, and you're going to go to those interviews. And I said, okay. Yes, sir. Right. <laughs> So he did, and yeah. I got interviews, and that's how I wound up working at Arthur Anderson was because, you know, he took the initiative, right, right. to call me to his office, and then he made the phone calls. He had the relationships, and then that's how I started my career. And he was absolutely right. That was the best place to start yeah. my career. So that's what our our faculty does here. That's the value. I mean, that's the value add that you're not getting at a lot of other institutions, just to be fully frank, right? And I know we're still, we're a large institution, 16,000 plus students, but it does not feel that way. I've worked at small liberal arts schools. I've worked at gigantic schools. I've gone to both public, private. Um, There are very few places that have 
um, kind of the demographics that we have of being so large that still will invest in a way that you're expecting. You expect that when you go to a private school with 3,000 students. That's part of what you're paying for. We're not paying for that here, but we're getting it. And that, to me, is that clear demarcation and that kind of value add that we don't talk enough about it about right. MSU Denver. That's tremendous value add. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Not to mention most of these faculty members have been here long enough that those relationships that they have are so broad. You know, of our 105,000 alums, 85,000 of them are right here, That's 20 right. minutes from where we're sitting. That means that there's 85,000 people here that we can pick up a phone and say, help us help a student. Uh, and that's our goal. I mean, that's really our goal through this uh, capital campaign from an alumni standpoint is that by the end of this, we want to be the most valuable like social capital network in the city of Denver. We want people to say, how do I become a part of that network? Well, easy, come and go to school here <laughs> and get this degree, become a part of this community, understand what it means, that when we see each other as roadrunners, we're gonna help each other and we're gonna move those people into the places where they have the best opportunity to succeed because we know they're equipped to do so. Yeah, right? that, that is all what the Capital Campaign mm -hmm. is about. Yeah. Learning is a lifelong endeavor. Whether you want to upskill, learn about a new field, or change careers, MSU Denver offers a wide variety of professional development opportunities. With flexible formats that allow you to proceed at your own pace, explore our programs at msudenver.edu slash career launchpad and use code MSUALUM50 to receive a 50% registration discount. This episode is brought to you by the North American Oscillated Turkey. It's what's for dinner. Since we're talking a little bit about the campaign, one of the pillars that we haven't talked too much about it actually on this podcast, but we have four pillars, four things that we're really focused on. And this is our first comprehensive campaign effort for this institution, which gets at the heart of kind of that business model we were talking about. Where do we find those additional revenues? Well, uh, there's been some great partnerships and uh, opportunities for the university to lean on the foundation and the university advancement team to kind of fill that gap. So we are uh, looking to raise a minimum of $75 million. I'm not ready to say the other numbers like everyone else is, but a minimum of $75 million uh, to support four really key areas on our campus. So student success. And so that's including any of our wraparound services, our scholarships, anything that is going to help the retention to stay and then the success to have that experience that allows to propel them into the career. Uh, another pillar is our diversity, equity, and inclusion pillar, which is really focusing on making sure that we're doubling down on this core value that is MSU Denver, that uh, we are here not only to exist as an institution where people from any background, uh, any racial background, any ethnicity background, you name it, uh, that they're coming in uh, and feeling as though they have a place here, but that we're also making sure that the opportunities and the experiences that they're having in a classroom is done in such a way that our curriculum is culturally relevant, that we have the right pedagogy and the right teaching styles to make sure that everybody has access to that education at an equitable way, right? Uh, we have another pillar that is our classroom to career hub and kind of our, our career success. And that is really focusing on, great, you got an education here, you're prepared, now what? And so this is our investment in making sure that we have those avenues, those pathways to support our students in getting the career services support that they need, the career, intentional career learning opportunities so that they're ready to go and to work with our industry partners to make sure that we have placement opportunities. And then our fourth pillar is our talent pipeline. That's where we're really trying to address Colorado's global issue of making sure that we have a workforce that is ready uh, and that we're meeting the needs of Colorado. And so we have a lot of fun. It's kind of our miscellaneous catch-all, but we have a lot of really great important initiatives in that space, like the Health Institute, which we've talked about, um, our School of Education programs, um, you name it. There's a bunch of things in that space that are great. You have been shown really kind of your personal interest in that DEI pillar. Yes. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, you know, 
being one of those diverse people, right, mm-hmm. being an African-American or black male, and, you know, growing up black in America, my experience is framed around all of that. Mm-hmm. And as I you know, reflect back to my high school career, when those three black accountants came to George Washington High School and reached out, that caught my attention. I said, okay, if they can do it, I think I can do it, right? And so I really focus in on the DNI piece and particularly around this inclusive excellence dimension, mm-hmm. uh, which is starts with representation. Mm-hmm. You know, and we are we're a Hispanic serving institution, we're a minority serving institution. Mm-hmm. And one of the most impactful ways to engage with diverse people is for diverse people to walk into the room and see people that look like them people that they can connect with. You know, if you go to the historically black colleges and universities, that's one of the connecting points that they have. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been to Howard, I've been to Hampton, I've been to Morehouse, I've been to Clark. Uh, in my corporate career, we were in Florida A&M when we were recruiting at those institutions. Sure. And you go to those campuses and you see the strong representation from the faculty, from the staff, from the administrators, black students connect there. It it creates a community and a safe space there. So the inclusive excellence piece for me is around creating that representation that connects with students of color so that they feel a sense of community here in representation and saying, okay, I can connect with the professor. I can connect with this environment. It feels like home. feels like a place where I'm welcome and I'm invited to be. And now I can really pursue my academic uh, career here at this institution. So I think that that representation piece is key. Uh, and then all the high impact practices that you extract from, say, the historically black colleges and universities, from the minority serving institutions, uh, Hispanic serving institutions that really engage with those student populations are practices that also generate student success results with all students. Right. right? So that's why I'm, I'm like really passionate about this this area. Yeah, it's I can tell that's it's incredible. Well, thank you for your support in that space and for kind of leading the charge in that. In fact, I think one of the conversations that I've been hearing uh, kind of circling around campus is our commitment to trying to be Colorado's institution of choice for Black students. So you want to talk us a little bit about what the idea is there, the vision there? Yeah, you know, and, and I've talked with. Uh, with Will Simpkins, our you know VP of Student Affairs, about this because all things students cross Will's sure. portfolio, right? <laughs> and he's passionate about this, coming from the Northeast and seeing a lot of these these practices uh, out there on the East Coast. Is that um, we have you know you look, if you look at our student population here. I think this semester we're around eight percent of our students are, are black okay. students. Um, if you look at the state of Colorado, it's only around 5 or 6%. If you look at the Denver metro area, it's more like 10 to 11%. Uh, I'd really like for us to do much better in recruiting and retaining and graduating black students. So as I've talked to Will, I've said, hey, I'd like for that number to be you know, like 12 to 15%. Yeah. I'd like to overperform in this area and focusing on you know, where are the black students at? You know, where they are? It's, it's Denver. It's the, the metro Denver area, including Aurora. Mm-hmm. I said, so we've got to really focus on Aurora. And you look at our ecosystem we have with the community colleges. We've got a great yeah. ecosystem with Community College of Denver. Uh, there's more opportunity with Community College of Aurora so that we can get those students to transfer here uh, as they look for baccalaureate degree programs that they can't, you know, receive, you know, and, and engage in, in in the community college system who can, they can do some bachelor's degrees now. 
but they don't have anywhere near the assortment and variety that we do sure. here. So I want to create that that in, that space and environment where we can really overperform in recruiting, retaining, and graduating black students as a part of this being the premier minority-serving institution in the state of Colorado. That's all you want to do? That's all I want to do. <laughs> no, I think it's incredible. As someone that was, you know, I started here 10 years ago, and seeing the aspirations toward being a Hispanic-serving institution, the numbers weren't there 10 years ago. And so it was a cognitive, strategic effort that everybody, faculty, staff, our community, our partnerships with community colleges, all of those things had to happen. And so I'm glad. So it's possible, right? Absolutely possible. And we've been through that. Not only are we a Hispanic-serving institution, we are a premier Hispanic-serving institution. We are showing people what that means, not just to simply have the a award. designation. We did. Um, it's not just about a designation. It's about what are we doing in that space to create that community. And I think all of these podcasts we've done over the course since we've started, it always comes back to this idea of community, um, whether it's the community of MSU Denver and how special that is or the communities within MSU Denver that, that are fundamental to whatever career path or success or, or fulfillment that we find. And I think as you talk through especially what the HBCUs are doing to create that community, if we can replicate that here and replicate it in your, to your point, to even just students of any community and any, we're going to be in such an unbelievable space to be able to not only bring them here, retain them, but to graduate them and propel them into our, our workforce. And as you think about the benefits to students, right? So for students of any you know, ethnic background or nationality to come to a higher institution that has this kind of diversity yeah. right, across all these different groups. You think about, I mean, as we talk about providing an enriched educational experience for our students, which is a, a big part of our mission, that looms large as a huge benefit that our students will derive from being able to study and learn an environment that has so much diversity. So it's it's beneficial for all students, not just for those ethnic minority student populations. It goes into the idea that that enrichment that's happening in a classroom because of that, let's not pretend that's not going to happen when we get in the workforce. That's exactly the space you're going to be in. You're going to come into work and you're going to be in a similar environment and having that leg up to know what it's like um, to be able to be in that space where you can the value of what everyone's bringing to the table, it's you're just a step ahead again. Yes, it's part of our, you know, preparing students for successful yeah. careers because yeah. that is exactly what they're going to encounter in the Correct. workplace. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to touch base with you on is you're not the only Knowles that has come to MSU Denver. You kind of have some Roadrunner Red running through your veins. Uh, there are a couple of other Knowles yeah, that came. there yeah. are. Yeah, all three. I, I, I'm the youngest of three kids, um, and so – my brother, Kevin, you know, he came through here also, got his bachelor's degree in phys ed and recreation. He was a baller too, right? He, he, he played, he, up he, he yeah. hooped up, yep. <laughs> of the two, I, we, we both play a lot of basketball. The difference was he was good at it and <laughs> sure, I was I marginal, it. right? So that's why I said I'm going to pursue a career in accounting. Sure. He, he played for the roadrunner, so he was a roadrunner yeah. basketball player. Yeah. Uh, and then my sister uh, came through also. Uh, and she got her degree in business. And uh, so all three of us came through. We were all road runners. We're all still here in Denver. You know, I left for 20 years and came back. They've sure. stayed here and continued to prosper here, living in the northeast Denver Park Hill community. Yeah, it's incredible. We hear that often, too, that it is there's a lot of family ties to this space. And it's I just always love that, you know, when we have somebody that's had that experience to be like, yeah, it's a part of our family's kind of DNA. Right. That's right. Well, that's incredible. We've talked about your career. We've talked about kind of your 
ambitions and the things you've succeeded on and kind of are aspiring toward in your trusteeship. How did you get re-engaged with the institution? You mentioned you were gone for 20 years. You were in New York City. You're doing all sorts of things. I'm sure serving on many boards in many places. What was the call back to MSU Denver and why did you say of all the, all the free time that I have <laughs> when not auditing that MSU Denver was valued and worthy of that? Well, I've stayed fairly engaged. You know, shortly after I graduated, I found myself on the alumni board. Sure. Right. So I was participating there. But when I uh, did disengage a bit was when I moved out of state. Sure. So in 2001, when I left Colorado, I moved to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, then I, I disconnected I, as I focused on growing my career out of state. Uh, and it was ironically when I moved to the New York area, and I was still uh, in touch with some people here at the university. I knew a couple of people on the foundation board. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Mulligan, who was uh, chair of the foundation board at the time, he reached out and said, hey, I'd love to have you join the foundation board. I said, well, I'm in New York now. He said, well, we got Zoom. We can handle that, right? We can. Well, this was before Zoom. <laughs> That's true. Right. Yeah, this, you're just this, calling, these were calling. these were conference calls. Yeah. They were awful, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you put a phone in the middle of the room, and, yeah. then, and you know, and, and you have to, you know, participate. But you could be in pajamas, way. though. So yeah, but I know. was in my office well, in New York okay. City, so, so maybe I wasn't. Not in pajamas. I wasn't in my pajamas. That would not have cut it. <laughs> in the buttoned-up, you know, starchy, laced-up New York City sure. business environment, but you know, Jim Mulligan, you know, reached out and said, "I'll, you know, if you're interested, you know, I'll." You know, present it to the to the foundation board members, and we'll do it. Mm-hmm. So I said yes, uh, and then I joined the foundation board, and so I called in, and then I sometimes flew out here for meetings. And you know what then brought me to the board of trustees was that the 2018 joint foundation board mm-hmm. and board of trustees retreat. I flew out here for that. Uh, it was up in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, and uh, had a great time there. And that's where I met Barbara Grogan, mm-hmm. who was the vice chair of the Board of Trustees at the time. And she reached out, and this was in 2018. So I had already announced my retirement mm-hmm. quietly at TI. I had told my boss, I said, I'm retiring at the end of this year, which meant March of the next year because I was going to stick around mm-hmm. and be on the payroll February 28th mm-hmm. of 2019 because that's when they paid out their annual bonus for the Smart prior man. year. So I said, I'm retiring on March 1st. <laughs> You pay my bonus on February 28th, and I retire on March 1st. He said, okay, that's the deal. So I was already focusing on, so I wanted to do board service. Yeah. I was on the foundation board. I was thinking about the MSU Denver Board of Trustees, but I wasn't mm-hmm. sure how to actually do that. Sure. But I had done some homework before that joint board retreat, so I knew who the board of trustee members were, you know. Mm-hmm. And I zeroed in on Barb because, you know, she has a, a branding of someone who engages and, you know, she's dynamic and she's got a tremendous leadership and career history as an entrepreneur. So I, I knew about her, but I never met her. And she came up to me as I was getting a cup of coffee and said, hey, I'm going to talk to you. And I said, what are you going to talk? And then she pitched, you know, you're interested in joining the Board of Trustees. Never thought of that, Barb. I, said, I don't How know. About I'll have that? to That's think about fancy that. Let me think about that. <laughs> Then she brought me over to the table where Jack yeah. Pogue, who was the yep. board of trustees chair, said, I'm going to introduce you to Jack, and then you can sit here at the table with us. And then it turns out Jack and I, he worked at U.S. West where I had worked. He was an M&A attorney uh, when I was doing finance and accounting there. So we knew a lot of common people and common experiences. So we bonded, connected there. And that's how I wound up getting on the uh, the board of trustees. Yeah. Well, Barb is very much like your mom, your grandma, your boss. That When Barb says you do something, you do it. Yeah, she, and she, 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 you know, as I rode shotgun with her because before I was chair, I was vice chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was riding shotgun with Barb going through the meetings and how she manages things and how she sort of brings people together and makes things happen. And you're absolutely right, because mm-hmm. there were some things along the line. She said, you know, I really think you ought to do this. 
And I said, boy, you're absolutely right. Right. And so I said, yes, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, what I love about this, too, is so many of the names that we've talked about are um, people that really, other than you, and, and I think you're actually our first alum that's ever been the chair of the Board of Trustees and our first black man that's ever been in that space. So this is a historic time for us to be able to say, no, let's let's have membership of our board of trustees that is representative of our student population, which I think is incredible. And so I don't want to sell that short. Um, but other than you, the rest of those names you mentioned, they're not MSU Denver alums. These yes. are community members that saw a value in this institution and the work that we're doing with our students. And then what our students in turn are doing for our communities and our economy and the state of Colorado in general, and have committed uh, over multiple different types of services to be advocates and be a loud voice for MSU Denver. Barb Grogan, was a trustee. She's now a member of our foundation board. We couldn't get rid of her and we didn't want to. Nope. <laughs> said, we'll keep her as long as we, we can. Exactly. Right. Jim Mulligan started at the foundation board and then moved into a trusteeship. Right. Uh, and so we've had a handful of those people that once you get that taste, you get that three year, um, you know, appointment to something, you get that taste, you say, I don't, I'm not quite done here yet. And so we find ways to keep you engaged and to continue to do that work, whether you're doing it from a governance standpoint on the trustee board or the foundation board in terms of how are we requiring and, and building those resources to to, to move the, the institution to the next place. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's well said. And, I, and I'm going to be doing some work, and I think you, you're aware of this, with our Alumni Association mm -hmm. board uh, to start to get more visibility between that board and the board of trustees so mm -hmm. we can source some more board of trustee candidates from our alumni. Yep, I'm so thankful to hear. I know you've spoken with Brandy Rideout at length about how can we make those connections. And what I'll say is our alumni board is thriving in a way that I haven't seen in 10 years, which is incredible and a testament to Brandy and her leadership and Jim Qualtieri, who's actually going to be a guest on this podcast in coming months. Um, they've done some really thoughtful and strategic things to make sure that we are getting our tentacles out in the right place and making sure that we have a presence to say, uh, if nothing else, be a representative of, I went here, look at what I'm doing now. So we have that representation to say success is possible, uh, career aspirations or whatever you want them to be, um, but also to say, how can we get back in this place and have an impact on the, the most critical needs of what's happening now? Some of that is in enrollment and admissions. Right. And so a partnership that the Alumni Association has made with our admissions team to make sure that we're going out and, and helping our students come to the conclusion that many of us came to that MSU Denver is the great fit for them, that it is open, it's accessible, it's affordable, it's excellent education, and you're going to get so much more than being a number somewhere else. So Well said. Yeah. Well it's said. almost like I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm, I'm so. guessing maybe you have. <laughs> I know. My 10-year anniversary is uh, December 12th, I think. Oh, that's coming up. And I was like, man, you guys got my 30s. <laughs> you got my it's the same joke I tell my wife all the time. I met her at 22. I'm like, listen, you can't leave now. I was skinny. I was cute. I was ambitious. I had energy. 22. 41 now. You got it. You got to stick with it. So MSU Denver, same thing. You got my good years. You're with me for the long haul now. That's right. We're, we're keeping you for as long as possible. You know it. Well, Russell, we've talked about a ton of things. What else would you like people to know? Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll, one other thing I'll throw out there is just sort of a, a personal factoid, but you know, I've got uh, two adult daughters. Mm -hmm. um, they are, this year, they're 36 and 39, okay. right? My oldest one now is saying, oh, my God, I'm going to be 40 next year. She's starting to, you know, freak that out a little bit about that. panic me for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, probably because I still feel like a 12-year-old kid, you know? Yeah. Well, she's <laughs> she's know. starting to think about it, right? I'm sure she is. And I've got three grandkids, mm -hmm. right? So 11 years old, uh, four, and then uh, my last one. And those are, those are two girls. Mm -hmm. And then my one grandson, and he is about five months old now. Oh, my goodness. And they're all in Dallas, Texas, right? So they're, they're right down the street. That was another mm -hmm. advantage to me moving back here. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I was going to stay in the New York area for a few years after I retired, mm-hmm. but the pandemic hit. Yeah, everything out. was locked down. I said, I can't do it. I was going to go to those shows, the restaurants, mm-hmm. and it was all locked down. I mm-hmm. said, so why am I here? Yeah. So I moved back, and uh, it's easier for me to get to see my daughters and granddaughter, mm-hmm. grandson, in Texas from here mm-hmm. than flying, you know, four hours yeah. from the New York area. Yeah. So it, it's just. It's funny how things work out yeah. over time, and so yeah. I'm delighted to be back home. I'm living in Denver proper, yep. you know, and we've got more big city problems than we, we had when I lived here before, you know, yeah. crime rate and traffic and inadequate infrastructure mm-hmm. and all that. But I'm used to that stuff from living out east. It's still the traffic's nowhere near as bad as in New York and northern <laughs> New Jersey. It's what I say. Right? My So my wife's from Iowa. I'm from Los Angeles. So traffic to me is like... When people say, like, how far away is something, I don't say miles. I say minutes. And so I think about that all the time. But my wife is just on a tear about how bad the traffic's gotten. I'm like, I'm still moving. The car is not stopped on the 405. This isn't traffic. This is just an inconvenience and more time to listen to podcasts like Bird Talk, right? That's right. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> it's all perspective. That's You're right. But there is more people on the road. I will yeah, say that. more people. I mean, I've noticed it. And, and, and then through all, all hours of the day. Yes. You know, I'll get out there at 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then I, I 225 going south. Mm-hmm. Or nine twenty-five going north is crowded, mm-hmm. and I ask myself, what in the world are all these people doing? Why aren't they <laughs> Why are home they at or at work? That's what I see. Where are they going? Why are they out here yeah. crowding up the highway? But that's yeah. the way it was in the Northeast. So yeah. it's still it's moving. It is. It it's is. not stopped. No. So it's all good. Yeah, it's, it's been a fun thing to see. Uh, you know, coming ten years ago and seeing how Denver has really changed a ton in that space, and it was a great. For us, it was a great middle ground and a great move, again, being from Iowa and California. It's dead center between our families, our home bases. But all of a sudden, we got the luxury of still being slower moving than a California. But finally, professional sports again, right? Yes. And concerts. Although we need a WNBA team. We do. That is, I mean, I used to go to the New York Liberty Games when Ugh. I lived out. And I just, I love the way women play basketball because it's not above the rim. It's not all this one-on-one mm-hmm. stuff. It yep, is, it's not a clear it out. Is, and, it is, mm-hmm. you know, they're running plays. They're I know. I got to see the Aces uh, game one of the championships because we were out in Vegas. Uh, and so we're like, oh, my gosh, they're here. This is perfect. So we went to an Aces game. That was my first WNBA game since seeing the Sparks play, like Lisa Leslie days, like back in – like the early start of it. And I was like, oh, this is entertainment. Not the basketball, I've been watching it on TV. You see it. But yes. I don't know if you've, like when you go, and especially at least the Aces, it was nonstop music. There's a DJ. There's all these things happening. I was like, this is overstimulation, even for Las Vegas, which is hard to say. Because, <laughs> that is hard to say. But I was like, but this is incredible. And so then, you know, I've heard the grumblings that we're working on trying to get a WNBA team. Um, but that would be that would be phenomenal. We need we need to do that. I love to watch them play. <laughs> now, in a perfect yeah. world, we build that arena right here on campus. That would be cool, right? Right across yeah. the street from Ball Arena. Mm-hmm. And then the Roadrunners can play because the seasons are different. Guys, there's something there. There's absolutely something. There amazing. could be a new a new initiative in our pillar for uh, the talent pipeline. <laughs> Look, it's gonna happen. We're gonna get a WNBA team. It's just a matter. Of I know. I know. It's gonna happen. <sighs> I mean, Denver's a perfect locale for it too. It is. We're gonna wrap this up uh, with our rapid fire questions. We ask this to all of our. Uh, we ask this to all of our guests. So the first one is, what is your favorite MSU Denver memory? Uh, it, it was graduation for me, yeah. you know, and, and and that took place uh, back then at the um, it's today the convention center. Mm. Uh, it was it was I think it was the McNichols Center or something mm-hmm. back then, but that was is my my fondest memory was the graduation, walking across that stage, receiving my degree, 
you know, it was a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. And you get to still participate in those and hand out degrees now, yes. which is pretty great. Yes. In fact, you actually handed me my degree when I graduated yes. from MSC Denver uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. One mm-hmm. of your degrees. One of my degrees. Yes. But We're going to work on getting you an accounting degree now. Hey, I heard that some of our tuition benefits might start... Eventually, we're, we're having conversations that that might include master's degree programs on campus. And oh. so if we get there, it's not a done deal. But I know that's one of the things is we're talking about, you know, our, our strategic plan pillar of making sure that this is one of the most incredible places that people want to work in Colorado and in Denver. We're really focusing a lot of our efforts as an institution on our staff and faculty well-being. And so some of those conversations is that our tuition benefits are great. I know I took advantage of mine, got myself a PR degree, but we're hearing a lot from the professional development cycle that that we'd love to see graduate courses be permitted in that space. But as you know, they're, um, you know, tuition funded programs, not state funded. There's been some challenges there, but we're trying to g- find our, our solution that takes us around to get to that. And if that happens, cause Ann Murphy, Dean Ann Murphy has been on my back for six years about that too. Good. I will get myself in a business class. <laughs> I will be the least equipped that I've ever been. Cause my entire career has been, you know, in, in higher ed, but we'll get there. And, and if that happens, you have my word, it'll be a, another degree. And you'll get an A. Yeah, Cause that's what you do. I mean, I, I don't know how not to, yes. I'm just going to be honest. What does it mean to you to be a roadrunner? You know, it, it, to me, it, it means it's a sense of pride around accomplishing big goals and making big things happen in the lives of others, uh, including the places where we work, right, where we bring our roadrunner work ethic, our scrappiness, our resourcefulness to drive success at the organizations we work at, and then we engage in the community with people and share that spirit. So I'm proud to be a roadrunner. You know, I was running between all those darn buildings because before we had a campus here, and that's just a big part of how I approach life. It's resourcefulness, it's scrappiness, and I relate it all back to my being here as a roadrunner as a student. I just told my class the story that that's why we're called roadrunners because we were talking about our Fifth Amendment rights due process. So we got into eminent domain, which is always a great opportunity for me to explain the history of our campus because I look for those chances to really inform them about the importance of the opportunities they're getting and the history of this. And so I asked them, I was like, do you guys know why we're called roadrunners? Nothing. I go, do you know that we used to be the Metropolitan State College Mustangs? And they were like, really? I was like, yep. I go, and we were roadrunners because we had to run across roads. And they're like, no. I was like, guys, I'm not lying here. <laughs> this is a real thing. So That's real. Yeah. Ten minutes between classes, Fox Street building, Cherokee Street building. All right, we were running. Yeah, I believe it. All, you know, all seasons of the year, snow, spring, you know, we were, we were there. I get it. All right, last question for you. If you could put a billboard anywhere on campus with a piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say? Take the time to really become as self-aware as you can be to understand who you are and what you're about and use that as a basis to be able to work effectively with other people. Yeah, that's at the heart of everything. I think that's advice that the world needs to see on a billboard. Um, There's, I think... Unfortunately, too much a lack of self-awareness because of things that we've talked about, the idea of wealth and power and what we end up seeing is a compromising of values or people that not even realizing that they have certain values because they've pushed them aside in a way. But we need to be values-driven and we can't be values-driven unless we know what those are. That's right. And it starts with knowing who you, who you are, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Get grounded there. And, and you know, that, that will empower you to empower others to give you feedback. Yeah. Well, I love it, Russell. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I know first thing in the morning on a Friday morning, hopefully this is the hardest thing you got to do all day. I have one more meeting down here at the mm-hmm. university this afternoon. It should, shouldn't be a hard meeting. Good. You know, it's Friday. Right? It's Friday, right? How I hard know. can it be? I know. I'm in my casual uh, Roadrunner Red, you know? Yeah, although I'll say my hardest task today is I have to go home and rake leaves. Oh, me too. But I'm glad I waited because so I've done it like three times already. Um, and then I was going to do it again on Saturday. And I was like, listen, there's still leaves in the trees. Crazy wind the last two nights that all the leaves are gone. They're all in my driveway, but... At least I will only have to do it one more time. Yeah, this will be my third go around. Yeah. And then that's it. The rest of them I'm going to mulch. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I appreciate you so very much. Um, we are very lucky to have your leadership. I'm lucky to have your friendship. And I'm so glad that our listeners get to experience uh, and hear a little bit more about your story uh, and the ways that you're continuing to impact this institution and, and moving the needle in all the places we need to go. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And I look forward to more success, you know, with the Broncos. That's right. As well as with MSU Denver and our aspirations as we drive to uh, achieve our vision mm-hmm. uh, and then working with you and the advancement team. Perfect. Okay. All right. Go Broncos. Yes, go Broncos. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Wrightout, Heather Holzbauer-Schweitzer, and Andy Schlichting. Production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, roadies.